0: Please rise as you're able for the reading of today's scripture, taken from Micah, chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrata, who are the one of the little clowns of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give up until the time when is to rule in Israel, whose origin is If the Assyrians come into our land and tread upon our soil, we will raise against them seven shepherds and eight installed as rulers. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Derek, for reading our lesson. It's uh, good to hear you picking up on the Middle Tennessean accent this morning. Uh, you're becoming one of us the longer you're here, and we're grateful. Uh, Thanks to the ensemble for the beautiful, beautiful anthem that they've shared with us, and we look forward to more uh, after the message. I hope you're going to be here uh, tomorrow at one of about 15 worship services that we'll be hosting together uh, that begin at 12 noon. We're so excited about tomorrow and today as we conclude this series that we started at the 1st of December on the prophets, the prophetic voices, of course, are actually the cradle of the incarnation. But tomorrow night at all services, tomorrow afternoon and tomorrow evening, we'll be reading from Luke 2, the Old King James uh, Version together, verses one through 20. And we look forward to the music, to the message, to the fellowship, and to communion celebrating on Christmas Eve. I love the story of the art teacher who was once teaching her group of second graders how to draw. And she noticed that one of her girls, one of the students who normally had a a very short attention span, had sort of become mesmerized in her own sketch, in her own art. And for a full 20 minutes, somehow, this child, who usually was always in motion, was sitting perfectly still, her arms curled around a piece of construction paper with her crayons, and the teacher was curious. Young lady, she said, what are you drawing? To which she replied, I'm drawing a picture of God. The teacher said, but child, no one knows what God looks like. And she said, but they will when I'm finished. (laughs) One of the things I love about today, about this season, this fourth Sunday of Advent and Christmas, is this sense of imagination. You can feel it. In the room, especially on a rainy Sabbath day like this. I don't know how it is with you, but rainy days and Sundays always get me up, (laughs) and you can feel it. I love it in children, this sense of imagination. And during Advent and Christmas, it just ignites a sense of hope and dream and vision within us. I was reading recently an article about the importance of parents reading to children particularly in regard to the kid's brain development when they're young. And we're seeing now that research shows that children who are overexposed to video or pictures may actually short-circuit imagination. But children who are regularly exposed to reading, to literature, show significantly more activity in the areas of the brain that process visual association. So in short, the article seemed to indicate that literature, verbal communication, verbal imagery, metaphor helps the mind and the heart to do the work of imagining the story for yourself. That's why when you read a favorite book and then you see the movie, you say of the movie, it was nothing like the book. It wasn't at all like I had imagined. I think to myself of Theodore Geisel. Do you recognize that name? I was visiting with friends recently, and I noticed the artwork of this one that you know as Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel, a man who wrote over 60 kids' books and published 600 million copies of his books. He once said, and I quote, think left and think right, think low and think high. Oh, the thinks you can think of, if only you try. Dr. Seuss had a way of creating words in ways that created imagination within children of every age. Even Dr. Einstein said imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited, but imagination encircles the world. Who was it that said a soul without imagination is like an observatory without a telescope? I think that's right. That's one of the many reasons that I love these prophets that we've been reading, because they have this sanctified vivid sense of imagination. In fact, did you know that the word imagine in the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, the Greek word is fantasia. You recognize that word as a part of our word fantasy. It is not an accident that many of our greatest theologians wind up writing fiction like C.S. Lewis with The Chronicles of Narnia, like J.R.R. R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings, like others, Flannery O'Connor and Dorothy Sayers. And I don't know about you, but personally, I'm at the point in our postmodern culture where I now think it's time to move on from the age of information to the age of imagination. Walter Brueggemann, who is an Old Testament professor many years at Columbia, an authority on the prophets, in his book, The Prophetic Imagination, says, and I quote, it is the vocation of a prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination, to keep on conjuring and proposing alternative futures to the single one the king says is the only thinkable future imagination. I don't know about you, but I've noticed that people in charge, church and world, are often threatened by prophets. Have you noticed that? For good reason, I think. Prophets are so unconventional, aren't they? They're so unpredictable. They're so unrealistic and impractical. In fact, listen to Micah 4 verse 3. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Now, I don't know about you, but it sounds a little naive to me, doesn't it, you? It sounds a little utopian, if you ask me. That's why I think Karl Marx called religion the opiate of the people, because he saw faith as a denial of reality. But of course, it isn't so. Prophets are not pie-in-the-sky people. They don't deny reality. They define it from the inside out. Let me give you another taste of the prophet Micah, although I warn you, it is reality. The leaders of Israel and Judah are contemptuous of justice. They twist and distort right living Judges sell verdicts to the highest bidder. Priests and preachers mass market their teachings. Prophets preach for high honorariums, all the while posturing and pretending dependence on God. We've got God on our side, they say. He'll protect us from disaster. Why, because of people like you, says Micah, Zion will be turned back into farmland Jerusalem will end up as a pile of rubble, and instead of the temple on the mountain, it will be a few scraggly pines. End of quote. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like opium to me. It sounds more like iodine. Prophetic teaching doesn't numb our senses. It often stings our senses. And Micah was not a painkiller. In fact, the kings would have said he was simply a pain. It is no wonder then that a prophetic lifestyle would have been so brief they did not last long because they make people think, and that's dangerous. We can't have that. Lewis Carroll, who wrote Alice in Wonderland, once said, listen to this, imagination is the only weapon In the war against reality. Micah had imagination. In fact, did you know that his very name in the Hebrew means who is like the Lord? His signature verse is in chapter 1, verse 1, as all prophetic signature verses are, and it begins like this. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of King Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. These three kings ruled the northern and southern kingdom between the year 742 and 687. His hometown, Micah's hometown village, Morasheph, was a backwoods hole in the wall town that would have been maybe kind of like Waverley or Flatwoods, Tennessee. It was 22 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Some referred to Morasheth as Morasheth Gath because it bordered the Philistine town called Gath, which incidentally was the birthplace of a great warrior. Maybe you remember his name, Goliath. Unlike Zephaniah, whom we talked about last week, Micah didn't come from nobility. He came from the other side of the tracks. Micah wasn't a blue blood, he was a blue collar. In fact, he came from farmers and shepherds. He came from the soil. He was what we might refer to today as a a Jewish redneck from Rocky Top. He lived in a time of spiritual and moral decay. He saw trouble coming, and he foretold the destruction of the divided kingdom, Samaria and Jerusalem, and it occurred. He defined reality, and it happened. But then he goes on in Micah 5 to transcend reality. By the way, this is what poets and priests do. They are realistic, but they see beyond realism. God enables them to see beyond the surface into the heart. That is not to say that God is irrational. It means that God is transrational. He is not unreasonable, but He supersedes our reason. You need some scripture for that? Isaiah 55, verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are not your ways. In other words, God is not confined to my narrow categories of logic and reason and what he is supposed to be doing. In Micah 5, the prophet transcends the reality of decadence. But you, O Bethlehem, who are one of the tiniest clans of Judah, from you shall come forth For me, one who is to rule Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient of days, and he will stand and feed his flock in the strength of Yahweh, and they shall be secure, and he will be your peace. Now, notice I've underscored and italicized Bethlehem. In the ears of a Jewish audience... The very mention of Bethlehem in a sermon would signal something very important. What is it? Well, first of all, it's David's hometown. The most beloved king in the history of Israel came from Bethlehem, and that word Bethlehem literally means house of bread. Secondly, Bethlehem, like Micah's hometown, Moresheth, is in the boondocks. It's in the sticks. In fact, it was so far back in the woods, you had to walk towards town to hunt. (laughs) It's outside of the city. It's outside of Jerusalem. In other words, it's outside of the center of power and privilege. They don't even have a stoplight. It's a one-horse town, insignificant, inferior, that doesn't even make the map. Three centuries before Micah wrote these words, 1 Kings 16 says that it was to Bethlehem that a prophet named Samuel was sent to anoint a king who would follow Saul. God directed Samuel to Jesse's place. You remember Jesse had a house full of boys. Can you imagine? Eight sons. And so when the prophet comes, he knows why Samuel's come, and he parades seven of his young sons before the prophet. And after Samuel investigates all of them, after he vets all seven of those, he says to Jesse what sounds a little insulting, is that all you got? A little offended, Jesse said, well, um, no, there, there, is, there is one more. But you don't want to see him. He's the baby of the family. He's the runt of the litter. In fact, we sent him out to take care of the sheep. And Samuel said, Let's have a look. And across the threshold in that little home in Bethlehem walks this young, ruddy, teenage shepherd boy with peach fuzz still on his cheeks. And God says to Samuel, That's my boy. His daddy couldn't believe it. Why him? Why him to be king? And the prophet said, because man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. That's transrational. That's seeing beyond what is to that which can be. The mention of Bethlehem stirs imagination and awakens hope And it echoes the theme that you find in the Scriptures. Haven't you noticed God has a habit of choosing the least? God has a pattern of choosing the last, the unlikely. He chose Jacob over Esau. He chose Joseph over Reuben. He chose David over seven brothers because he chooses the humble over the haughty and God is always lifting up the lowly it's transrational you see it again in the birth mother's song don't you it's called the magnificat where this teenage woman in what looks to be compromising situation receives the announcement that she is to bear the child and she breaks out into song my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the poor it's fascinating to me that seven centuries after he wrote this, Micah's prophecy became the GPS that led the Magi to the cradle. Matthew reports they were astrologers, they were stargazers. They were Persian pagans who had been following a star. They were looking for the newborn king. And you remember, they got as far as Jerusalem says Matthew, and they stopped by Herod's palace to ask for directions. These men asked directions. That's how we know they were wise men. And they come to the king, and they ask the question, where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? And Herod called the seminary over at Vanderbilt, and they didn't know. He called the faculty at Duke. They didn't know. He called SMU, called Asbury. They didn't know. Finally, he called Emory University where I went to school, and they knew. (laughs) They opened their Bibles, their scrolls, and they pointed to this minor prophet who only wrote seven chapters, and they said, well, it says here that in Bethlehem, the smallest, most unlikely of places in the world there will come forth a savior, a son of David, a shepherd. And so these unorthodox pagans hightailed it to Bethlehem. It's always struck me as ironic that among the first to kneel at the cradle were these unorthodox pagans who didn't know Scripture. While the Orthodox believers who knew the scripture stayed home, they didn't go. Which led Thomas Merton to say the ox and ass understood more about the first Christmas than the high priest of Jerusalem. It's transrational. What's happening this week is beyond our capacity, it's a mystery. That in a backwater bump in the road, little three-letter town, a Savior was born just as Micah imagined. A son of David who would feed his flock in the strength of the Lord and will be our peace. You know, it's no accident that Micah imagined him as a shepherd because Micah himself was a shepherd. And so was Abraham. And so was Moses. And so was David. And so was the prophet Micah. This is the mystery of a transrational God who comes on our terms into our world incarnate, in terms that we can understand. Indeed, the babe born this night will grow up to say, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and they know me. Sherry and I went to the Ryman Auditorium last week. It was a church, you know, when it was built for Sam Jones, the great evangelist from Cartersville, Georgia. We used to live in Cartersville, Whenever I go and hear music there, they call it the Church of Country Music, but it's really the Church of Sam Jones. It's a beautiful spot and a wonderful venue. We enjoyed the music of Rodney Crowell, songwriter, Amy Grant, and Vince Gill, all alike poets, prophets, whose music reminds us of our humanity, of our brokenness, and of our hope. I think, Vince Gill, I think I would go anywhere to hear that man sing. What a wonderful voice. What a wonderful storyteller. He sang a song in the second half of the show that he had written for his wife, Amy, on her birthday. He said of these lyrics, it's very truthful and it's very vulnerable. He said, Amy and I grew up so differently. She grew up in a church home and I grew up in beer joints. We had different family experiences. She had this wonderful church life. I had no church life. I had no shepherd. And then he sang the song. It sounds really more like a hymn when you read it. All my life I've known of Jesus, but that connection never came. And when my world was torn to pieces, I still could not call his name. But when my Amy prays, When my Amy prays, I see his face. She gave me my first Bible. It sits right beside my bed. On the nights, my hands are rattled. I turn the pages, but it's seldom read. But when my Amy prays, when my Amy prays, I feel his grace. She's got my back, and she don't judge me. She gives my heart some time to change. Even at my worst, I know she loves me. She brings me shelter from the rain. When my Amy prays, when my Amy prays, that's when my hands raise. There wasn't a dry eye in the house, and as I listened to that refrain, I realized that not only is Amy his wife, she's his shepherd. Connects him to Jesus. Do you have that shepherd? You can. You do. In the one of whom Micah imagined, he has come. He is come. And he will come again. And he will redefine your life in transrational ways. Because God is not an act of our imagination. We are an act of his imagination. Francis Schaeffer said, the Christian disciple is the one whose imagination should fly beyond the stars. And so it is. We're two days out. You've made up your wish list, which now includes a righteous branch, fire and soap, a faith that sings, and a shepherd who is our peace. Add it to the list, and it will redefine your life. In Jesus' name. Amen.